0: If you have your Bible, flip over to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to continue our study through Luke's account of the Christmas story. And while you're turning there, let's talk about Christmas movies. In my family, we, uh, we watch Christmas movies in the lead up to um, Christmas Day And in general, there's not like a rule to this, but in general, we um, start with the least good movies and then they get better as we get closer to Christmas, right? So the anticipation builds, you start watching higher and higher quality movies. So like, I'm talking like after Thanksgiving, you're watching the Hallmark movie that just was released this year, right? That you've seen a hundred different versions of before. So that's what we're watching early in the Advent season. But now we're getting into crunch time, where we're watching the good stuff. Okay, so last night at our house was the Santa Claus. Can I get a name in for Tim Allen in the Santa Claus? My kids hate it. I don't know why. Well, I know why. Um, uh, they don't get the jokes, number one. So the, I watched the movie. The whole point of the movie for me is to see Tim Allen make fun of the stepdad over and over and over again. And he delivers jokes about that guy's sweater just perfectly, over and over and over. And I'm, so I'm cracking up, and Cade, my son, he's looking at me, he goes, he's just going, uh. And I, I recognize, like, you don't get the joke, that's not funny to you, watching two dads who hate each other make fun of each other, probably not appealing to a nine-year-old. I get it. And they, they like the action scenes, right, where, you know, Santa's flying around, and, you know, they get into it eventually. Uh, another Christmas classic, though, Christmas favorite, maybe this is one of yours. Anybody a Christmas Story fan? Raise your hand if you you're like that movie, Christmas Story. It came out in 1983, if you'd like to feel old. <laughs> um, Christmas Story, my parents actually did to me the, the, the trick that uh, they play on the kid in the Christmas story with the Red Rider BB gun. So the whole movie is about him getting this BB gun. My parents did, to the, did that same trick to me when I was about seven or eight years old. We got through kind of the Christmas morning. All I wanted was a BB gun. It didn't have to be Red Ryder. I just needed it to be a projectile. Like I didn't care. Um, but that's what I wanted that year. And he got through the opening of presents. I got through the socks. I got through the underwear. I got through the button-up shirt that I didn't want, right? We got through all of that stuff. Maybe a toy here or there. And that was kind of it. There was nothing left under the tree. And I, you know, I'm a good kid. I don't want to disappoint my parents, so I'm trying to, you know, either fake smile. It's great. Love it. Thanks, Mom. And then my mom goes, hey, what's that over there in the dining room? I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, over there behind the china cabinet. What is, what is that? And sure enough, leaning up against the corner is a beautiful, as a daisy BB gun. I still remember it. In fact, I think my dad still has it. A little deep pump action BB and pellet gun combo. And just the surprise took the joy to another level, right? The surprise just amplified the gift even more. Not only did I get what I wanted, but I thought I wasn't gonna get what I wanted. And then I did. And it just changed the whole dynamic of Christmas for me. What we're gonna look at this morning in, in the Christmas story is the surprise of Christmas the surprise of the Christmas morning. And really, if you work through Luke chapter 2, all of it, nothing in our text this morning makes sense. Nothing about the birth of Jesus is how it ought to be or how you expect it to be. And I'm convinced there's a reason for that, and so my hope is that we might see what that reason is today. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to read 20 verses, so settle in. Um, Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 20 together. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quir- 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 quirinius that's how you pronounce it, 100% sure, was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the joy, for the wonder, for the magic and the mystery of Christmas. And as we look here this morning at the very first Christmas would you show us Jesus and show us him clearly, not the way we expect him to be, not the way we assume he is, but God, the way your word tells us he is. And would you encourage our hearts with those truths, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Everything about Jesus' arrival is surprising. That's going to be our first point this morning is we're looking at Jesus' surprising arrival. This, this, it doesn't make sense at all, right? And we've talked about some of this before, but Jesus is born to blue-collar, working-class parents. I mean, uh, Joseph is, is, a, is, a, is a tradesman. Uh, Mary is a teenage girl. You know, it doesn't get much lower in first century uh, Israel on the social uh, ladder than that. And they're just normal, everyday people. These are not royal people. These are not uh, these are not people from uh, a priestly lineage. These are not high class people. These are not wealthy people. They're just normal people, which is confusing why the king of the universe, the king of the nation of Israel would come from these people. Not only that, they're from an unremarkable hometown. They're from Nazareth, it says. They had to go uh, from Nazareth in the Galilee region to Uh, Bethlehem in the Judea region, which on a map is down, it says, uh, but in the text it says they had to go up to Bethlehem. The reason is because it's up on a hill. It's up on a mountain. And so there's there's this movement from this um, kind of uh, country area, rural area, to Bethlehem. They have to leave their unremarkable hometown, unremarkable city of residence. Later in the Gospels, when people heard that Jesus was from Nazareth... Somebody replied, can anything good come from Nazareth? Anybody from a town like that where they go, is anything good from, from that town, right? This is Jesus' story. Then they get to Bethlehem, and they can't find a place to sleep. There's no room at the inn or no room to stay. There's no homes with empty beds. There's the, the, the public lodging is all used up. There's no place to stay. I can imagine the arguments Mary and Joseph had on the walk over there. She's probably telling him, I told you to book it on Expedia before we left. He's going, I forgot, you know? A little bit busy building the crib for you. So, probably not. And so, the, where are they relegated to? They're relegated to this, I don't know, the same place that animals stay in homes. There's some debate, scholars aren't, aren't totally sure. Like what this place looked like, whether it might have been a cave or a stable, more like barn structure like we think of in modern times. Or even like in first century Israel, some homes had like a separate room attached to their home for their animals. They were separate, but they kind of under one roof. Either way, they're staying in the animal part of the house, right? It's gross. I have a new puppy. Let me just tell you, animals are gross. Amen? Amen? Not only that, Bethlehem is, in and of itself is not a, a big city. It's not a bustling metropolis. It's kind of a, tr- a, a, a pit stop on a trade route between Jerusalem and Egypt. It's, it's, it's got some history to it in Scripture for sure, but it's not a big town. It's not a glorious town. Jerusalem is where all the action is, and yet this is taking place in Bethlehem. What are we going to make all, of all of this? Why is it so significant that Jesus arrived in a way that defied expectations? Here's what I think, I think it sets the stage for the entirety of his ministry. It sets the stage for the entirety of Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus didn't just defy expectations in his birth, but he defied expectations in his life too, didn't he? I mean, think back, just play back what you know of Jesus' life and ministry in your life. When when his disciples figured out who Jesus was, what did they tell him to do? They said, Lord, are we we gonna take over now? You're going to establish your kingdom? Lord, when are we taking the throne? Let's go. What did Jesus say? He said, whoa, 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 it's not my time. Let's slow down. Another time the disciples were with Jesus, and kind of crowds were gathering around, a bunch of kids were rushing up to Jesus and trying to get some of Jesus' time and attention. And his disciples said, no, 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 kids, you're not important enough for the Savior of the world. You've got to go over here, stay away. What does Jesus do? He defies expectations. He said, no, 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 no let the little children come to me. His disciples, realizing they had latched on to the king of the world, they started dreaming about the status they may have when Jesus finally does take over Israel. They started dreaming about how, who's going to sit on his right hand, on his left, when he gets on the throne. Jesus doesn't answer their questions about who's going to be important in the kingdom. Instead, he turns to them and says, hey, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And in fact, the least in the kingdom of heaven will be called the greatest. Everything is upside down. Jesus' most famous sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. You can find it in Matthew chapter five, six, seven. The the, kind of most memorable piece of it is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a list of blessings that Jesus proclaims. And every one of those blessings is the exact opposite of how the world thinks things should go. He flips everything on its head. When it was time to finally take his place as king, instead of leading a revolt and a rebellion and putting down his oppressors, he gave his own life up in their place. And then, when everyone thought he was gone once and for all, buried in a tomb, he defies expectations yet again. And he gets up and he walks out of a grave alive. Jesus defies expectations, not just in his birth, but in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. That's what he does. And there's something about the surprise of Jesus' arrival that should make us tune in, that should make us focus, that should make us pay attention then to what he has to say. I like surprises a little bit too much my wife would tell you. In fact, sometimes I'll lie to my kids and tell them things are awful just so that I can come back and surprise them that things aren't as awful as they thought. I remember one time I I went to undergrad in Southern California, which is a long way from Tallahassee, which is where I'm from, and uh, that meant holidays. I didn't always get to come home for holidays. Airfare is expensive. I was in college. You get the point. One year, I I wanted to surprise my parents by coming home. I think it was for Thanksgiving, and so I made the arrangements. I I, I bought the plane ticket and uh, called a friend and arranged for a ride home from the airport and showed up, I think, the day before Thanksgiving, My parents' door and just rang the doorbell and let my mom open the door. And if you're a parent, you probably know about how she felt when you thought you weren't going to get to spend the holidays with your kid and your kid shows up. It was great. The surprise has another element to it, though, doesn't it? It turns all the attention on the person who does the surprising. Right, So I spent the, next, the rest of the evening explaining how I pulled off the trick and showing them how I, how, I, how I made all the arrangements. And then the whole evening was spent talking about me and my life and how school was going. I loved it. It was great. But there's something about a surprise that makes you tune in to who surprises you and listen closely. And Jesus' entire life, from birth to death to resurrection, it confounded expectations. And I would argue that the message that accompanied Jesus does the same. That's our second point this morning, is Jesus came with a surprising message. Look at verse 11. Go back in in Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 11 with me. Matt read this earlier, and I loved it. This is what he says. He says, for unto you, this is, again, the angel speaking to shepherds, first of all. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. From his birth, Jesus' mission and message has been one of salvation. From his birth, Jesus' mission and message has been salvation. He says, This day a Savior is born. He's Christ. The Lord And the people of Israel, not terribly surprised by that. That part's not all that surprising, right? They were looking for a savior. They were oppressed by the Roman government. They were being taxed uh, to crazy levels. They, they were, the Romans were interfering in their religious practices. They were kind of treated like second-class citizens. They were, like, they were kind of in, but kind of out. And it wasn't a great situation for the people of Israel. This wasn't new for the people of Israel, though. The people of Israel has been oppressed in their past, too. The Babylonians took them captive and held them. Once they finally found themselves free from the Babylonian captive, captivity, then the Assyrians came along and captured them, and they were stuck in captivity there. And now here they are under Roman rule. And so for 600 years or so, they've been on again, off again, ruled by other nations, having their land that they were promised by God occupied by other people, having their worship interfered with by their enemies. And amidst this, God has consistently promised a Messiah who would rescue them. He's he's promised someone who would come and save them from their oppressors. And they've been eagerly waiting for this. They've been looking for this. And he hadn't come. The thing is, though, their idea of what their Messiah would look like was radically different than what Jesus looked like. They were looking for a political savior, someone who would come and take the, the actual Roman ruler and move him off the throne and then he'd put a Jewish person on the throne so they could rule their own land and people the way they wanted to. It's only natural they'd expect that. A lot of their occupation and oppression has been political in nature. And yet what we learn from Jesus' life and his mission is that he didn't come to overthrow a government, did he? Matthew chapter 1, his account of Jesus' birth announcement in verses 20 and 21 say this. It says, this is the angel speaking to Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he... Will save his people from their sins, it says. Not from the Roman government, not from wicked rulers. He will save their people, his people, from their sins. The reality is that God recognizes that his people's greatest problem is not political, people's greatest problem is spiritual in nature. We do good, this is not a political sermon today, but we do well to remember that as well. Amen. What good is it to have the perfect government set up if at the end of the life, your life, you still have to pay the price for your own sins? What good would it be if the tax level was where you wanted it and the person who was in, in charge that, that did things the way you thought they should be done? If at the end of the life, your life, you have to stand behold, before the judge of the universe and not have an answer for your guilt, what good is it? The Bible says clearly the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus' mission was a rescue mission. He came to save us, not from government, but from our sin. More than that, Jesus' message was surprising for a second reason, though. Look at verse 10 with me again. Luke chapter 2, verse 10, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. How many is all? Amen. You guys passed the test. All means all. This good news that the angels show up and proclaim to these shepherds is good news for all people. Not just elite people, not just religious people, not just for good people, not just for wealthy people, not just for church people, not just for clean people, for all people. And it is so vital that we understand that Jesus came for all people, because it's going to change what we think about ourselves in relation to Jesus. It also changes what we're going to think about the gospel for other people. People have a hard time believing this, that Jesus came for all people. But look who hears about Jesus's birth first. Right here in our story, does, does the angel show up in the temple and appear to the priests? No. Does the angel show up in a, in a Roman palace and, a, and appear to the the, the, the governor of the area? No. Who does the angel show up to? Shepherds in a field. Let me tell you a little bit about shepherds in a field. Shepherds in first century Israel were, uh, one commentary I read described them as scoundrels. It's not a word we use, but I think we should use it more. Described as scoundrels, these are considered dishonest people. They're considered kind of roughneck people, Right? They're they're not to be trusted. In fact, in in the first century, they weren't allowed, shepherds weren't allowed to testify in a court of law because as a lot, they were just in general that untrustworthy. Not only that, religiously, uh, in the Jewish faith, they were ceremonially unclean because of their contact with their animals. They couldn't worship, they couldn't go into the temple unless they had been cleaned. And it was kind of a, a hopeless endeavor because as soon as they get clean and go into the temple, they're going right back out to the, to the sheep and it's just they just kind of lived in this unclean state. And God goes, that's who I'm going to first. These outcasts, these lowlifes, these scoundrels, these dirty, unclean people... That's how I'm going to show the world that Jesus came for all people. Men who are deemed unclean and therefore unable to worship in the temple, I'm going to show them the host of heaven worshiping God. An incredible way to announce to the world that the Savior has come. People struggled with this throughout Jesus' ministry too. Jesus would spend time with who? Tax collectors and sinners. And he took a lot of flack for it, didn't he? People were mad at him for it. You're hanging out with these unclean people. It confused people. It angered people. Even after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, Pentecost has happened, and the the church is being built in the book of Acts. You can read, there's this debate, like the first 10 chapters of Acts, they're still not sure if like unclean people who are not a part of the nation of Israel can come to Jesus, right? And there's there's a debate going on. They have to have a whole council about it. And finally culminates in Acts chapter 10 the Apostle Peter is having a dream, and God speaks to him through a dream. He basically says, hey, I want you to go to these unclean people called Gentiles outside of the Jewish faith. I want you to go to them and bring the good news of Jesus to them. And he does that by showing Peter this picture of a sheet with uh, what these foods on it, these animals that are on it that are unclean considered in the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. And he tells Peter in his dream, he says, hey, Peter, I want you to rise, kill, and eat. This food is for you. This food can be a part of your life now. And Peter responds, he says, by no means. Peter tells the Lord, no, I'm not doing that. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Acts chapter 10, verse 15, the voice came to Peter again the second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. God said there's new rules. Everything's changed. This message is for everybody. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody is too far outside the boundaries. Nobody is too dirty for Jesus. He came for all people. You know what that means? It means Jesus came for you too. Each and every one of us are welcomed in to the kingdom of God. No matter how much sin, no matter how far from God, no matter what you've seen or heard or said or touched or done, God says, I want you too. Jesus came to save you and me and any and all who would come. Which leads us to our third and final point. I don't think it's on the screen, but just hang with me. Here's the shepherd's surprising response to all of this. Shepherd's surprising response. Look at verses 15 and 16 of our text. Luke 2, 15 and 16 said, when the angels went away from them into heaven, which that's crazy, right? I mean, they saw heaven opened up out in these fields. wow. The shepherds went away from them into heaven. They said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so in verse 16, they went with haste. Bet they did. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. How did the shepherds respond to hearing that the Messiah had come? To hearing that he came with good news? To hearing that that good news was for all people, they got up and went to Jesus. And the response for me and for you and for every person who hears this good news of Jesus is to do the exact same thing. The call for us this morning, church, is to go to Jesus. They got up, they left what they were doing, they went to Him. What happened to their sheep, you might ask? I have no idea. The text doesn't say it. Apparently, it doesn't matter at all. I'm leaving that. I'm going to see this guy. What about the fact that they're unclean and people of disrepute? Doesn't matter anymore. Angels showed up and told us that Jesus is here. I'm going to see him. Our response, our call is the exact same thing. Let's go to Jesus. The Bible says that we are to draw near to God. Hebrews says it three different times that we are to draw near to God. James chapter four says if we draw near to God, what does he do in response? It says he'll draw near to us. return. And so the response for me and you this Christmas season over this next week as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and for Jesus's birth is to draw near to the Lord. What do we mean when we say draw near to Jesus though, right? I mean, can we be real for a minute, right? If you've been to church for any amount of time, you've heard people talk about having a relationship with Jesus or or maybe you've heard a, a preacher say, hey, you need to draw near to God. What does that mean? Like, we're, we're, we're not shepherds in first century Bethlehem. Jesus is not here in physical form, so we can't, like, get up from where we are and go near to him. So how do we draw near to God? I don't want to be overly complicated, but the answer to that question, how do I draw near to Jesus, is different depending on what category of person you're in, okay? So hang with me for a second. There are two categories of people according to God. People inside the family of God And then there are people outside of the family of God. There is no third way, that is it. You're either in God's family, you are out of God's family. Those are your choices. People who are in the family of God can draw near to the Lord whenever they want. Those outside the family of God cannot draw near to God no matter what they do. We kind of instinctively know this is true, right? In In my home, I have three kids, ages nine, six, and three and they have free reign of our house. And if you have young kids, I don't care what kind of rules you think you have, they have free reign of your house too. My kids, on the weekends, when my wife and I will try to sleep in, emphasize the word try, my kids will get in, get up, come in, even to our bedroom, jump into the middle of the bed, start asking us questions about chocolate chip pancakes and what we're doing today. and I mean, it's just like, Total free access to draw near to us, right? Here lately, we got a dog a few months ago. So here lately, they actually, they go to the dog's crate first, get the dog, then they bring the dog to us (laughs) in the bed. It's great, we love it. Our kids have free access, they can draw near to us whenever they want because they're a part of our family. Let me tell you what, someone who is not a part of my family tries to walk into our home Certainly, into our bedroom uninvited and unannounced. You think my reaction will be the same? No, they will be expelled from our home quickly and with violence if necessary. So, the first step in answering the question, How do we draw near to God, is to determine which group am I in? So, we've got to ensure that we are part of the family of God so that we can draw near to Him. John chapter 1 says this, how do we become a part of the family of God? To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called sons of God. What does it take to be in the family of God? It means believing in Christ, believing in his name. Luke 2.11, we looked at his name this morning already. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. The Lord, a three-part name, right? A Savior. You believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did, that he came to save us from our sins by dying on the cross and being raised into the dead three days later. You believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, sent by God, anointed one specifically for that purpose. You believe that he is the Lord, worthy of your worship and submission and worthy of your life. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do, you will be saved. The Bible is clear. You have your sins forgiven. You're now welcomed into the family of God. You believe not just in his birth, but in his death and resurrection. That's how you become a part of the family of God. Before we go any further, can I ask you this morning, have you ever made a decision to believe that Jesus is Lord? because if you haven't everything I'm going to say from here on out is totally irrelevant the, the songs we'll sing the, the the this whole thing doesn't matter if you haven't put your faith in Jesus for salvation i want to tell you is the easiest thing that you could ever do it'll cost you everything but it'll be worth it you can right now in this room put your faith in Jesus and secure for yourself eternity in heaven and life in the family of god i'm just encourage you to take a moment even in your own mind and your heart right now to pray Dear Lord, I believe that you came, that you died, and that you rose again for me. I want to turn from my old way of living, and I want to follow you instead. The Bible says if you pray that and you believe it, you will be saved. Isn't that incredible? Even you, even me, it's available to all of us. You're now a part of the family of God, which means you have access to God. So what does it mean to draw near to God once you're a part of his family? How do we do that, Christian in the room? For those of you who have put your faith in Christ, how do you draw near to God? How do we go to him? Honestly, it means much the same as it does in a normal family. At first, it means communicating with God. God has spoken to you through his word. You can know him. You can know what he's like, what he values, what he thinks of you, how he feels, what's important. You can know the future. You can know all sorts of things through this book. It's incredible. God has spoken to us through his word. I remind my kids regularly that I love them. My, my middle daughter, uh, she is at the age where she gets annoyed when I tell her that I love her. I'll, I'll bring her over and I'll say, Charlotte, now listen, don't forget that I love you. And she, she looks at me and goes, ah, oh, dad. Rolls her eyes, walks off. I never forget, she says, and she walks off and goes on about her business. I tell you, as her dad, I'm thankful that she's annoyed at how much I tell her I love her, rather than wondering if I love her, right? Some of us aren't sure whether or not our Heavenly Father loves us, and yet He is telling us every single day that I have loved you with an everlasting love. And yet we're not listening. Communicate with God. He's speaking to you. He has something He wants to say to you. But He also wants to hear from you as well. He wants to know your heart, your joys, your pains, your fears, your insecurities, your joys. He wants to know all of it. He wants to hear from you. And he's present and he's listening and you can speak to him through what Christians call prayer. It doesn't require fancy words. It doesn't require formulas. It doesn't require beads. It doesn't require uh, going to church or being in a special place. It just requires you opening your heart to God and speaking to him. Just talk to God. He will listen. You know what else I think it means? The Bible says, draw near to God. I think it also means that we ought to find our rest in him. We ought to find our rest in the Lord. There's a deep sense of comfort and safety that comes from being around people that you love and that love you, right? It's one of the things many of us love about the holidays. And part of drawing near to Jesus is realizing that if he really did pay the price for my sins, and if he really does love me unconditionally forever, and if I really am in his kingdom and I can never be snatched from it, I can relax a little bit, Amen. Some of y'all, in Jesus' name, need to relax. Especially heading into Christmas. It means I can stop trying to be all things to all people. I can stop trying to earn Jesus' love with all my religious activity. I can stop trying to erase my past with my good deeds. I can stop trying to convince people to love me. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I am safe and I'm secure, and so I can just be. I'm going to tell you, for some of us, the most spiritual thing you can do today is not read your Bible, not fast, not pray, not sing, but go home after church today, turn the lights off in your bedroom, say, Jesus, thank you for loving me, for saving me. I want to find my rest in you and go to sleep. Take a nap in Jesus' name. We talked about the joy candle this morning, I think, finally. Finding your joy in Jesus is a big part of drawing near to him. There really is no reason for Christians to lack joy. As Pastor Matt said, joy is not just circumstantial. It's not just an emotion, but it's, it's a deep and abiding sense of happiness, even in spite of circumstances. I'm not talking about a fake, oh, everything's good, brother. I'm talking about Deep down, everything can be falling apart around me, but I know that my Savior lives, and so I'm okay. We can have that kind of joy, and we forget this type of joy when we're far from God. Psalmist says in Psalm 16, he says, "In your presence is fullness of joy." When we have distance from God, when we're not pressing into Him, when we're not drawing near to Him, we forget the joy that is found in Christ. Has life been hard? Has it beaten you up? Has it got you down? Maybe Christmas isn't shaping up to be what you thought it would be. I want to encourage you to draw near to Jesus instead and go looking for your joy there instead. Even the wandering Christian, maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, that all sounds good, pastor, but you don't know what I've done. I, yeah, I believe this. I put my faith in Jesus, but you don't know how I've screwed up since then. Some of you feel incredibly distant from the Lord because you know your life hasn't been what it should be recently. You've got areas of your life that you know are outside of God's will for you. You know you're walking in what the Bible calls sin and you're aware of it, but you continue to do it anyways. Maybe you've made huge mistakes that you don't believe God can forgive you for. I gotta be honest with you, sometimes I think it takes more faith to believe God can forgive us a second and third and fourth and 500th time. Then sometimes it does to believe he can forgive us the first time. At least the first time we can plead ignorance. I didn't know, Lord. Thanks for saving me. But those of us who are Christians and we still screw up over and over and over again, our excuse is gone. And like, I don't know if he can really forgive me again. The reality is, your God is a good Father who stands with open arms inviting you home over and over and over again. The Bible says he never runs out of mercy. In fact, it's new every morning. Is it a new day? Then God's got new mercy for you. All you've got to do is claim it for yourself to step into it. Confess your sins, the Bible says, and he will forgive you of your sin and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and then you can run right back to the Father's arm. He wants you. He loves you. You can draw near to God. Church, Jesus surprises us with the humble way he arrives. He surprises us with how his birth is announced. He surprises us with his life, his death, his resurrection. And he continues to surprise us with his never-ending love for his people. And so, church, let's press into that love this season. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you that, you I thank you that we love you because you first loved us, that you took the first step towards us, are putting on flesh, being born in a manger in an unimportant town 2,000 years ago in Israel. I thank you that's a real event that really happened in time and space and that it changed eternity for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be like the shepherds who respond to the good news of your arrival with action. Help us to respond by drawing near to you. For those in the room who are not, Believers who haven't confessed you as Lord, who haven't put their faith in you for salvation, would you make the, today the day of salvi- salvation for them? For those of us who do know you, would you help us to press into the relationship that we have with you through Jesus? Even those who have wandered a bit, Lord, would you help us to return knowing that you are filled with mercy that never, ever runs out? And so, Lord, we worship you now in response to your goodness and grace towards us. And Lord, we go from this place eager to be ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen.